Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Dr. John Mike. I think it's been a long while since I've been on, but it's nice to be back. I'm an assistant professor in exercise science. I'm a strongman competitor. I like to take up a lot of space, and I like to eat. And uh, all I've been doing is spending money lately and traveling. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Summer's a time for travel, but I know you've got a lot of academic travel and stuff you always do. So Sure, sure. Okay, um, we're going to tackle a little bit of uh, news and mail. And just for the heads up, after the break, we're going to check in with Dr. David Geyer. He's a orthopedic surgeon and sports med specialist. And he's going to talk about injuries and career longevity and... Um, he lifts weights, actually. He started as a runner, and he dropped the running and went to lifting. I think it's kind of funny. A lot of listeners are probably like, woo! Um, but So he gets it, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. And I'll probably drop a couple of surprise questions on him, too. So after the break, injuries, treatment, prevention, career longevity uh, from a lifter's perspective. But let me start with a couple of things. Um, Strength and Muscle Sport News. I have in my hand an article that I stumbled across, and in fact, I was just uh, talking to Chris Shugart over at Biotest about this a little bit, but um, it's about antioxidants and anti-inflammatory nutrients, so talk about you know career longevity and stuff like that, not letting inflammation run wild on you. Um, this is specifically, the article is about carrots and blueberries, but I'm going to focus more on blueberries because I've been tweeting about this lately. This is the season, right? Go get yourself blueberries that are the size of marbles and put them on a cookie sheet and freeze them and then put them in a big freezer bag. You'll have blueberries for your pancakes all year. John and I are both big pancake fans. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so health up your pancakes. But let me share a few things. Home-based preparation approaches altered the availability of health-beneficial components from carrot and blueberry. This is by Gao and colleagues, G-A-O. Um, let me just offer a few things. Fruits and vegetables are recognized for their health-promoting pot- uh, potential due to the high concentrations of various beneficial components, including uh, phenolic acids, flavonoids, anthocyanins, and other bioactive components. Blueberry is one of the most popular and important berry fruits globally. It contains significant amounts of phenols, including phenolic acids, flavonoids, anthocyanins, and procyanidins, uh, which have been reported to have many health effects on things like cardiovascular disease, you know, diabetes, blood sugar control, etc. cetera. Uh, and listeners, the uh, anthocyanins, they are uh, what makes things blue or purple, right? Not like blue number five and red number seven or whatever in, in your uh, Lucky Charms, but the real colors from nature. In fact, at the IFT conference that we just got back from from Vegas, there was a ton of effort of using things like anthocyanins to um, anthocyanidins. There's a variety of these compounds to color foods, get all the great colors that you want without the weird dyes, you know. Um, 
so anyway, uh, long story short, um, they they put berries in a blender and they microwave them like you might like in your oatmeal in the morning or whatever. Um, and blending didn't really affect one way or the other. So you might think, oh, you got to blend things up in order to get access to all those nutrients. It, honestly, it didn't really do much. But the, the good side is it didn't really hurt. Uh, like, for example, I'll often tell people with flax seeds, you got to grind them up so you can get those lignans and stuff that's inside the flax seeds. But with berries, it doesn't really matter. So in one sense, that's good, though. So you could pull those frozen berries out of the freezer like I do, throw them in your way, protein shake, and it's not going to really harm it in any way, you know, to blend, blend the crap out of it. Uh, what struck me was microwaving was able to actually induce a significant increase in the antioxidant ability uh, that you'll see in carrots and in blueberries. I might think the opposite. Like if you nuke the, the shit out of yeah. something, you know, it's going to hurt its antioxidant abilities. But in fact, it, uh, the authors are speculating that it might inactivate certain enzymes that would naturally break down all of these these phenols and these beneficial anti-inflammatories and whatnot. So uh, pretty cool. Uh, so if you're, if you're throwing berries in a blender or you're microwaving them in some way, uh, keep on keeping on. It's actually uh, quite good. And there's also some evidence in this paper. Again, this is um, Food Science Nutrition 2017. Uh, interesting evidence of, uh, that talks about the, not just the antioxidant, but the anti-inflammatory effects. There's some neat neuroprotective effects of blueberries too. So I'm a big fan and check it out all right this next one and forgive me everybody i'm fighting off some conference crud i don't know if what's like with you uh, dr mike but when i go to a conference a lot of times i come home and i get a cold like my really? immune system takes a hit i don't know i think yeah. you know you're, i don't know i don't i don't really feel like um usually like when i travel i don't really get colds i mean that much i mean i take you know good like multivitamins and supplements and stuff but uh -huh. um i mean it's just like I get like thirsty and hungry. Like, I mean, I take creatine like actually before I get on airplanes most of the time. And, and some people look at me like I'm all like weird out. I came from outer space, but you know, you talk about you know, it's just for it helps with hydration effects and it helps to maintain or increase plasma volume. Interesting. Um, you know, during during flights because you know airplane flights can certainly get you dehydrated. But I don't really get colds. It's just like, but I just get your circadian rhythms just get off, you know, sometimes, especially oh, yeah. if you like East coast to West coast. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't really feel it that much when like maybe one time zone, but like two or three time zones is just, yeah, I don't get colds that much, but that's interesting that that happens. Yeah. I haven't had a cold in a year and, but uh, yeah, to me, it's a combination is I can't sleep when I travel and it might be the time zone, but I'm always the first one up. I'm up at 5 a.m., especially because we went, we went West, right? And most listeners know we record Eastern time or I'm in the Eastern time zone. So I'm three or four hours off. It's the lack of sleep. I don't usually take my supplements with me. Like I noticed Dr. Nelson, he always has his little you yep. know, bin of, of stuff, his fish oils and this and that. And I usually don't, thinking, what's a couple of days, you know? And in many ways, that's probably true. It's not like my tissue concentrations are going to tank in three days. But for whatever reason, yes, I'm fighting it off. So I'm sorry, everybody, if I'm sniffling. Um, here's a question for you, John. Um, this is beyond my scope, so I'm glad you're on here. This is from Karen, and she sent a cool study, too, as she is wont to do, and we'll address that in just a minute, but uh, I'm a 29-year-old female. I've trained in powerlifting for three-ish years. Lately, I'm struggling with coming 
up with deadlift powerlifting programs for myself, mostly in terms of frequency. Okay, so deadlift frequency is one of the questions here. Uh, I read a lot of different theories on programming deadlifts that range from multiple times a week to just once a month. I've been sticking to once a week as this is the most convenient for me. And then parentheses, one squat day, two upper body, one deadlift day. Uh, I have found that deadlifts really seem to take a toll on me and I don't recover well from them. Lately, I've noticed my form really deteriorates when doing them weekly and I've been depressed about them overall, so I've been uh, doing them quite infrequently. Uh, but even though I've been skipping them a bunch, a bunch of weeks, they seem to stay relatively strong. Uh, however, I'm afraid I'm not going to pro progress by not doing them, right? Uh, what are your opinions on deadlift frequency? And then she gives some reference background. She says, I'm 165 pounds. My current deadlift max is 320 pounds, that is. Um, and I was ro running the uh, Cone Filippi routine uh, with a lot of accessory work stripped out. So stripped out a lot of the accessories to help with the burnout. Uh, also, I had my testosterone levels checked and it was very low even for a woman. Uh, so any help uh, that you have. So what do you think about deadlift frequency, sure. John? Not just for yourself, because right. you're a huge, robust dude. So, yeah. right? Uh, great question, actually. I mean, first, I mean, she's 100, she said you're 165 pounds and her max is 320. That's pretty damn awesome. Yeah, um, no, she's pretty awesome. First of all, so yeah, congrats to you. Congrats, that's awesome. Um, keep 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 going up. Um, I would say that um, multiple things, I just kind of wrote down some quick notes. You know, deadlift frequency, um, it, it has a lot of uh, misconceptions with like squat frequency. And most people think that depending on how many years you've been training, um, you know, novice or intermediate lifters, or even even competitors that are a little bit more novice or intermediate, they think that one of the best ways to get your lifts up is to do them more. And that's really not necessarily true. That might start working okay at the beginning, but you know, she did hit on a, a correct point: is that you know, um, deadlifts, especially heavier loading and, and towards max effort will um you know it will lower your recovery ability they just they just wear they just wear you out i mean i can tell you all the times i've done heavy max deadlifts i'll do like a couple of accessory exercises i mean and i can even tell when i do the accessory stuff my volume is just not as high because i'm already trashed um Mm -hmm. And typically, typically takes you know depending on how much load that you lift. I mean, it, it could take you know a, a week and a half or so uh, for you to like fully you know re physiologically recover, depending on the load and, and and all that stuff and things leading up to it. Um, but I would I would suggest you know if your current max is three twenty, the first thing I would suggest is where are you weak at in the lift? Is it are you weak off the floor? Are you weak at mid range? Mid range? Are you weak at lockout? Most people are not weak at lockout it's either going to be right off the floor or mid-range um, so if you're weak off the floor then i would start working on a lot of speed work um, and utilizing accommodating resistance with bands or chains um, typically you can do a wide variety of sets or reps um, typically with speed work with deadlifts you're not really going to do um, sets of five you're typically going to go doubles or triples you can even go singles you can do your um, uh, traditional you know conjugate um protocol which I, I train conjugate system and i love it um you know you can go eight by two ten times two you know 12 by three for speed work um so accommodating resistance i would also s suggest that if do you train um 
traditional deadlift or you do sumo most people train traditional a lot um and if so if, if you're if you if you're so used to training traditional i would go sumo um because typically the two if the two biggest two or three biggest limitations to um, deadlifting is either grip strength um low back or glutes um and so sumo takes a little bit more advantage of hip strength um it can also decreases um force arm typically the range of motion to which you actually have to pull and so um, you said that you mentioned that you don't do any accessory work or you limit accessory work. work. A lot of people don't do um, a lot of accessory work. Um, and I can tell you that you need to kind of start changing your mindset on that. Most of the benefits that you're going to get through training need to become from submax work. And most of them need to become from volume or from accessory exercise. Um, you know, pick, pick, start figuring out which accessory movements that you feel work best. Um, I mean, I would I would start doing back work even on lower body days. Um, I do back work on lower body days and of course upper body days and um, hamstring um, strength as well. Um, so more volume with accessory work. Um, hey John, where, John, let me yeah. ask you something though. She stripped out the accessory work right. because she was getting burnt. So if if you started overtraining, would you strip out the accessory work? It sounds like you wouldn't. Well, yeah. I don't. It's hard to say because is she getting burnt because she's deadlifting too much, or is she getting burnt because maybe her her volume is so high with accessory work? It's okay. just hard to say because mm-hmm. I don't really know what um, the rest of her training program is. But I don't. I don't. I don't see. I you, you do see some people that in getting so burnt out they do so much accessory work. Um, but it depends on how much volume that 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 really you're actually doing. So it's kind of hard to say. I would I would have to know more details about her training program. Um, but I don't really hear. Um, it, well, that's, that's, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I would have to know more details about her overall training program. But um, so. I, yeah, I would just have to leave it okay. at that. But I would definitely say that, you know, you, you mentioned about your form. Um, again, I would have to probably see that because a lot of things with training come down to really three things, things that are technical, mental, or physical. And a lot of times really people need to focus on the technicalities, um, first and hone in on those before they start to, um, move into other areas of improvement. And a lot of times too, people think, well, I'm weak at a certain lift. So what are some other exercises that I could do to, to help with that? And exercises are not always the answer you need to look at the technique first and a lot of times technique will tell you where you're weak at and so 135 or 225 may look awesome but you get up to 275 300 plus you know then you start to really see where you're where you're weak at um and typically mm-hmm. with with deadlifting to the off the floor and uh you know low back t-spine rounding you know lack of glute strain things like that so i i would i will look um into that more detail and then um i would suggest that if you want to contact us again um, back on iron radio you can um, email lonnie and then yep. um he can let me know and then we can go from there okay uh so in her current situation, I know you can't give very specific advice because you don't want to have all the details uh, of the training program. But um, once a week, then I mean, yeah, I would say once a week. Um, I, I mean, I actually, for me personally, um, I do more speed deadlifts and accessory work than I actually do max deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the last time I did a, a heavier 
deadlift was back in late May. Wow. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So, but I just, I mean, I just went up to 575. I mean, I did a double overhand grip, you know, so, and that was after I got off of, the next day after I got off a plane, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but um, I don't do like super heavy max deadlifts a lot. And most experienced lifters don't do it either because they know that it's going to just make them trash. But yeah. also, too, you don't necessarily want to max out all the time because that's, because your true maxes really come for competition. Um, so you want to spend more time with accessory you know, work to actually help increase um, the lift. But you also can do variations of the exercise as well, like RDLs, you know, good mornings, box squatting, you know, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, glute ham work, reverse hypers, uh, back extensions, um, speed work. So those things will all help. Right on. Yeah, I'm often curious about Women, you know, the, the literature on strength training in women is not nearly as, as robust as it is for guys. And, for example, we both know in exercise physiology, like, estrogen is muscle protective when it comes to DOMS, you know, soreness and that sort of thing. But uh, there's lots of aspects to recovery. What do you mean by recovery? Do you mean your muscles are very sore? Do you mean your nervous system just feels tanked, like, you know, your legs are heavy? You know, is it a nervous system thing? So I always wonder how much of that increased robustness that women seem to have to eccentric you know to doms and that kind of stuff how much of that might extend into their nervous system and you know i don't know maybe allow them to train more frequently uh, a lot of those questions seem like they're unanswered you know yeah the they are stuff. especially you're right especially at women i mean i like to do a training study with eccentrics and females actually to see you know what the effects are if they have any less or even extenuated you know types of soreness it might have be um you know volume dependent as well because typically you know um as well as you know lonnie you give a male and a female if all things are matched up fairly accordingly um, you give them the same type of program. I mean, the females are going to recover that much quicker. Which, in yeah. the training sense, and, and and I and of course I know this from working in when I worked in semi-private training. I mean, females just recover so much quicker, and they can typically handle more higher intensity, and more volumes on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let's get to what Karen sent. She sent an interesting study about booze. So uh, before we go to break, let me just share this. This is not a brand new study. It's American Journal of Physiology, uh, Endocrinology and Metabolism uh, from 2016. Uh, but it was interesting because sometimes I've read papers that ingesting alcohol can raise testosterone uh, right after lifting. But then I've read other papers that suggest that if you regularly consume alcohol, it depresses testosterone, things like that. Anyway, let me get away from the testosterone thing. Um, the title is Protein Co-Ingestion with Alcohol. So consuming protein the same time as booze, following strenuous exercise attenuates the alcohol-induced intramyocellular apoptosis and inhibition of autophagy. That's a mouthful, but basically what it's suggesting is, and I'll get to this, is if you consume protein with the alcohol after strenuous exercise, it may be protective, I think, uh, in a sense. This is smiles. And colleagues, and again, this is 2016 AJP Endocrinology Metabolism. It says alcohol ingestion decreases post exercise rates of muscle protein synthesis, but the mechanisms of, of the increased protein breakdown uh, underlying this observation are unknown. And then it goes on to say that autophagy is an intracellular recycling system. Uh, it's dysregulation, right? So when it goes bad, it could provoke apoptosis. 
So people aren't familiar, that's sort of cell death, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's dysregulation of autophagy may provoke apoptosis and lead to muscle atrophy, muscle shrinkage. We investigated the acute effects of alcohol ingestion on autophagic cell signaling uh, in response to a bout of combined resistance and endurance exercise. So uh, honestly, that's the kind of thing I do these days. I know I'm an old man and I do my cardio and my lifting sort of at the same time, but that's what they did. And then post-exercise, they ingested alcohol with carbs, uh, a calorie-matched alcohol protein drink or protein only. And then they took biopsies uh, at rest and two and eight hours post-exercise. So they're trying to get at what's happening to their muscle cells from the alcohol and then what the protein does to maybe counteract the alcohol in a sense. It says DNA fragmentation did increase in both alcohol conditions, but let me skip to the end. They're, they're measuring a lot of intracellular signaling things. We conclude that alcohol ingestion following exercise triggers apoptosis. So again, a certain amount of cell death, uh, whereas the anabolic properties of protein co-ingestion may stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis to protect cells. So, um, so yeah, two, it's really interesting. I, um, I, I read this abstract the other day. I haven't read the whole article, but probably the two biggest things just right off the top of the head. And of course, we all know that studies have limitations, but they only had eight people in the study. Um, so their, 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 um, effects, power effects in terms of trying to find a significant effect so, is obviously going to be, you know, going to be really low. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also too, it's like with these alcohol types of studies, you know, keep in mind, that they're not giving subjects the amount of alcohol that most people drink in one sitting or at social settings or, you know, they're not giving these subjects like, you know, six beers, um, you know, and, and tequila shots or, you know, some, some of this other stuff. I mean, it's a small amount, um, you know, of, 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 of alcohol. So those are just kind of things to kind of help keep in mind. Yeah, the external validity is often an issue. I've actually been a part of a couple of alcohol studies where we measured blood alcohol content. We gave people shots of vodka because we wanted something that was a fairly high proof clean you know almost i don't want to say pure ethanol but you know and uh trying to get the alcohol up pretty high but but your point is well taken like when most people go drink they don't do very measured amounts in a very specific time frame it's like with coffee you know when we do coffee yeah. studies we give people a half an hour to, to basically drink 20 ounces of coffee we're trying to ballpark some real world setting like this applicability external validity but you're right. That's definitely something people should look for. What's the dose of alcohol? What's the time frame they consumed it in? You know, stuff like that for sure. So, yeah, in any case, it's an – and you're right about sample size and that kind of thing. I mean, this is a muscle biopsy study, so I don't think you're going to see 50 or 100 people in a study like that just because it's invasive and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But um, interesting stuff. I don't know. It might be enough that, you know, if I do go out for several beers when I do or wine or whatever, maybe come home and slam away protein shake or something <laughs> before mm -hmm. before you go to bed. I don't know. So so thanks, Karen, for that. That was, that was cool. All right, man. Well, you haven't been around that much. Um, any final things before we go to break? What's happening with Dr. John? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I'm going to be moving uh, sometime later this summer to another job, kind of get, get it narrowed down. And um, and then I got the NSA conference coming up and yep. I, got, I got three conferences I got to speak at in the fall. Um, we just got 
uh, I mean, let's see, back in April or early May, I got um, three articles accepted for NSCA Streets and Conditioning Journal, and um, I just sent two of the proofs back. Um, so those will be coming out hopefully, you know, by the end of the year. And I got another one that I got to finish revisions for and send that back. And I got a book chapter that's due sometime in October. And, um, you know, just try to trade, you know, pretty well. And, um, you know, eat is just, you know, sleep a little bit. I started taking actually, um, and maybe I think we've done a show on this before. Maybe we should do another one, um, on, um, nootropics, uh, brain nootropics. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I I started taking some of those and uh, because I just really noticed that, I, I mean, after the semester ended, I mean, uh, for maybe like a two or three week period, I mean, I just, just lack of focus, lack of concentration, just more like impulsivity. And it kind of, it, it started like in the spring or even last fall, but it seemed to kind of get gradually worse. Um, I mean, I would be like at work and stuff and I'd just be like, I feel like I couldn't get really get anything done. Oh, I hear um, you. I think you get you know, burnt. Like, I mean, literally like anything done. It's like besides like email, like I couldn't focus on writing or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and then all the stuff that I did, it was actually at the house. And, um, so I started taking some, you know, brand new tropics. I got a good, good product and, Maybe we can kind of talk about that, you know, sometime for a future show. No, that's good. We uh, we actually started a mini series that will drop in between guests called Supplements That Work, you know, and yeah. we've talked about sleep aids. We talked about like anabolic type things. We could talk about pre-workouts, but I think nootropics or nootropics, they should really be on that list, right? Because how yeah, many of our are. listeners there's would a, be interested? There's actually a fair amount of research on them too. They're really interesting. And, you know, I was um, talking with somebody the other day and and they made a, they made a pretty interesting point is like, there's so many supplements out there which we know, but there's so many supplements that um, are impacted through so many like physiological systems. But there's just there's nobody ever talks about like the actual brain shit, you yeah, know, yeah. to actually help with brain function. It's it, you know what I mean. Especially uh, you know, dude, because like with powerlifters, so much of the emphasis is on nervous system and nervous system recovery, not just right. muscle tissue. So obviously, your brain is your central nervous system, a big part of it. So things that would be enhance memory or thinking or cognition, that might yeah. spill over into be neuroregenerative for the powerlifters too. You know. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, um, one of my good cl close um, people that, are, that I'm close to, she's finishing her doctorate um, at Arizona State, and she's looking at effects of strength and hypertrophy, but with internal versus external focus. Um, and of course, there's you know, there's enough research on there, but not necessarily like with the hypertrophy um, and, and the strength part. But I would definitely think a future study would look at the same type of aspects, but actually ingesting with like a, a nutritional supplement like nootropics uh, for more focus and concentration. So um, yeah, they're just they're really interesting and. Um, I mean, like, like alpha GPC and there's other, you know, things like acetylcholine. Yep. Um, I mean, and it's, it's funny cause I've been, I've actually been taking them for about a couple of weeks now. And even though I've been kind of traveling, I mean, um, Seems to I, help. I mean, I, I've been up like over at past midnight and sometimes I haven't even felt tired. Um, interesting. yeah, they're really, it's really interesting. So, um, that's definitely something we can talk about for a future. Oh yeah. I uh, mean, herbs and botanicals, the different amino acids, you know, I've been looking at single amino acids, uh, and how they have, you know, cognitive effects and yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah. We'll definitely have to do that. So and we'll, we'll make right. sure you and you and, uh, Dr. Nelson are both on that one. Cause I know Mike Nelson loves that stuff too. So, yeah. Yeah. He does. And who wouldn't like, if you're interested in physique enhancement, but you're also listening to Iron Radio. You're probably equally interested in sort of ergogenic effects on the on your brain. 
Yeah, because it's, I mean, it seriously is, I mean, I could tell you even just like from late May or most, most of June, I'll be sitting down like on my computer, you know, doing some, you know, uh, you know, job stuff or, and then all of a sudden I'll just check my email and then it's just like, I'll watch some videos and it's like, I just get totally off track. Right. No, <laughs> um, I, I, I hear just, you. Yeah, crazy. I think professors, people need to understand, we need summers or we can't reset and then re-engage in the fall with all this passion and curiosity and and focus. I know what you're saying. I mean, there's been times where I've sat down to review a paper and I'm like, I can't even read this. It's just not even sticking to my brain. I'm, I'm yeah. toast, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right, everyone, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, we'll join uh, orthopedic surgeon and sports med specialist, Dr. David Geyer. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Lonnie, and we have Dr. David Geyer, uh, and we're going to talk about, sort of in a nutshell, injury treatment and prevention and career longevity but before we do that i want to touch base and give everyone everyone some insight on dr geyer's uh background so maybe we can start by you telling everybody who you are and sort of what brought you to your current state either whether it's it's athletics or 
or medicine or all of the above. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I appreciate uh, uh, you having me on. Uh, so, uh, like you said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I specialize in sports medicine, which is sports and exercise injuries, not just pro and college athletes, but weekend warriors and kids that play sports, really everybody in between. Uh, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been doing it now for over a decade uh, since my training. You know, I played sports as a kid. You know, I was in the generation that we played a different sport really every season. You know, you play you know, soccer in the fall and basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring and swimming in the summer. And you changed based on the season, which doesn't happen now. But, you know, I was a good athlete. I wasn't great. I played travel soccer up to a point, but was never really a superstar athlete, but always liked playing sports. And then as I got you know, to, towards the end of high school and certainly in college, got really into exercise. Uh, at that point, lots of running and lifting weights and sort of gave up the running after about uh, you know, 12, 13 years, but I've stuck with the lifting weights. And so as I go to medical school, go to uh, residency for orthopedic surgery, and then decide to go into sports medicine, it was really because I love getting people back to what they love to do. I mean, a lot of my colleagues in sports medicine love the surgeries or love being team doctor at you know pro sports games and things like that. And all that's cool. But I tell you, the best part of what I do is you know, getting the soccer player or the, the runner or the guy that likes to do CrossFit or lift weights just back to what they love to do after an injury. The, the excitement, the joy, the happiness on their face really makes it all worthwhile. So that's, that's why not only that's why I decided to do it, but that's why uh, I enjoy it so much. Yeah, actually, um, listeners might remember months ago, uh, we had Kelly, my wife on, who's a, a counselor, and she was talking about some of the psychological challenges that come with once you start to your salient identity becomes athlete, you know, or bodybuilder or powerlifter, an injury takes that from you. That's a huge psychological challenge, right? So I can see what you're saying in the sense you're on the medical side, you're helping people to get back to at least some of what they were doing, hopefully most of what they were doing, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're so right. I mean, yes, there's the injury side, and am I going to be normal again? But it is a huge part of people's personalities and, and identities. You know, it's the soccer player that uh, wants to be with their teammates and really go into depression if they're not with it. It's yeah, the yeah. guy that lifts weights, that loves the endorphins and the exercise. And, and yeah, the, the stress release and the camaraderie, there's so much to it. But if people can't do what they love to do, it's an enormous, enormous blow to everything about them. All right. Let me pry just a little. So you dropped the running and stayed with the lifting. And I think a lot of our listeners are cheering at that. At that. But why? Why did the lifting stick, the resistance training, and the running fall away? Yeah. Well, I don't know that one really has much to do with the other. I think the running was one of those things that I just got tired of it after a while. I mean, it was... This sounds funny, and, and yes, I realize that there's music you can listen to and all that, but I mean, I just got tired of hearing myself think for an hour or an hour <laughs> and 15 minutes. It just would be, it, I mean, it was great from an endorphin standpoint, but I don't know. I just, I, I never really had desires to run marathons or, or that, and it was a lot of time, and I just wasn't enjoying it that much after a while, whereas lifting was something, you know, obviously I'm probably like most people that when you start, it's about trying to look better and get stronger. I was, I guess, between my junior and senior years of high school 
and uh, my parents uh, wouldn't sign me up for a Gold's Gym membership. That was back in the days when it was just like, serious bodybuilders. Right. It wasn't people like everybody that lifts now. I mean, it was only like big, big weightlifters. And uh, so I had to prove that I would go every day for a month before they would buy me a membership. And I did. And it was great. I was like one of these scrawny little kids that uh, uh, these big, big bodybuilders were in Gold's Gym. But they were so awesome. They'd help me, like show me the right way to do an exercise and all. And here's me with like 30-pound dumbbells trying to do dumbbell <laughs> chest presses. It was right. so ridiculous. But I just enjoyed it. I loved the um, trying new exercises, getting stronger, getting bigger. Um, and, and for some reason, that just – I, I can't really tell you other than I just liked it. I liked the variety. I loved, you know, even now I'll do a program for 90 days and then switch to a new program that has different focuses. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, I can't really tell you why that's kind of stuck with me. It just has. Right. No, good stuff. Okay, well, I know listeners are probably thinking, you know, we have an orthopedic surgeon with us. Some listeners know my sister's actually an orthopedic surgeon, and we touched on issues uh, in the past that we've talked about reactive medicine and that sort of thing, but um, just from our earlier communications, it looks like you're, you're often mentioning career longevity and ability to train later, so I want to dive into some of these questions. Um, one of them was how, let's say someone is a, a a powerlifter, a strongman, a weightlifter, whatever, whatever their sort of um, lifting career be, uh, and they've got a problem, you know, a nagging injury, chronic, acute, whatever it is, how would they know when to come to someone like yourself? That's a great question, and and the one that people are like, well, should I uh, wait uh, 48 hours? Should I wait a week? Should I wait six weeks? And, you know, maybe I'll try ice and rest and all this kind of stuff, and all that is a little tricky because there's not a right amount of time, like a number of days or number of weeks. This is sort of my rule of thumb, and I think this is great for anybody that likes to lift weights. Or really, this could be something you, you turn your ankle, you know, stepping off a curb. I think this applies too. I usually use this idea that um, can you do what you want to do as well as you want to do it? Obviously, if you can't lift weights at all, your shoulder hurts so bad you can't pick up the dumbbell, or your knee hurts so bad that you can't do a squat even with just body weight, obviously if it's that bad, you're gonna get it checked out. But a lot of times it's more subtle than that. You're able to do it, you just can't do it the way you want. Mm -hmm. So it may be you go to do a military press and you get this little twinge deep in your shoulder that doesn't keep you from doing it, but it doesn't. you can't do it as well as you want or with the weight you want, or you can't squat as deep because of this pain in the back of your knee. So if you can't do it at, to the level that you want to do it, I would say, hey, it's never a bad idea to get it checked out. There's this perception that orthopedic surgeons are just going to find a reason to operate. But the vast majority of the things we see don't need surgery. So if we can show you some simple ways to modify what you do or maybe a couple of visits with a physical therapist or taping or whatever, and that gets you uh, back to what you want to do and avoids a more serious injury, I think that's always important to do. Right. No, good advice. Uh, and you're right. There's so much of that is that gray area, right? I've dealt with that myself, especially being in, I'm a late 40s guy, age-wise, and I'm always in that kind of situation, it seems like, you know, the tendonitis in my left elbow or the the strange yeah. feeling in my lower back, and it's not enough to keep me from lifting. Um, although, to be honest, I think at some point in my career in the last few years, I, I haven't felt compelled to squat, squat 405 for reps anymore, right? I'm not <laughs> competitive anymore, and I'm thinking, what am I doing to myself, right? So 
Uh, I understand what you're saying about not being able to do things the way you want to, but I also think across a career, you know, maybe we need to have be logical about it too and ask yourself, you know, why is it? Like, especially because I was interested in bodybuilding as opposed to powerlifting, I suppose it might be even harder for a powerlifter. We were talking about identities, you know, and some of these guys can't let go, you know, and if they can't squat seven or 800 pounds, that, that hurts their self-esteem, sort of, you know. Yeah. But, um, I so, think that's real, and I think that you have to look at, when you talk about longevity, uh, I think you have to look at the big picture and what you want your body to be able to do when you're 50 and 60 and 70. I mean, you know, do you, and even earlier, I mean, you've got to keep your body healthy enough to play with your kids and to be able to walk without a limp and, and those types of things. So yeah, maybe at some point you do adjust what you're trying to accomplish, you know, maybe not go for the super heavy weights, but you do more reps and, and, or, uh, lower weights and, you you modify it a little bit to make sure you're not doing damage that basically catches up with you later in life. Right. Well, let's talk about preventing some of that damage because I have been very guilty, right? I mean, I've, I've let chronic tendonitis sort of become tendinosis in my elbows. In fact, I had a, uh, my right triceps tendon ruptured and I Ooh. had to have that repaired and that sort of thing. But, uh, in any case, um, what treatments are out there? What would you suggest to people so they can train as hard as possible later, right? We, want, we don't want a, a precipitous decline. Yeah. Uh, wh what's out there? Uh, treatment, prevention, any advice you might have? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a, a lots of different things, really, depending on what types of problems you're dealing with. Like, let's start with kind of what you were talking about with the tendonitis and that kind of thing. I'm a big fan, because um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I've never been a big fan of just shutting people down. I think that's hard to sell to people. And that's, again, this is what they love to do. Right. You may have to modify a little bit, but shutting people down, especially long term, is never really the option. So I think that uh, I'm a big fan with things like uh, an inflamed tendon uh, or an area where you get a small area of degeneration with the tendon, uh, which happens, especially if you kind of push through some of those issues for months and months and months. I'm a big believer in uh, working with a physical therapist to, to you know, strengthen those areas, deliver blood flow into the area to get it to heal, you know, maybe even as simple as icing after workouts and taping, you know, that type of thing to try to get over it before it becomes a more serious problem and ends up shutting you down for months or end up needing surgery. And usually that works. The other, where it gets into trickier areas is where you start to develop sort of wear and tear of things like the cartilage in your joints, essentially arthritis, something like that. And where I think we're headed uh, in here in the next I don't know, a few years, maybe you know, five to 10 years at least, um, are some of these substances that come from your body, platelet-rich plasma, PRP that the football players have made famous, stem cells, things like that. I think that um, as you and I and our listeners kind of get into the older ages, we're going to hear more and more about that, not just at preventing injuries, but hopefully reversing the damage that all of our work has, you know, in the prior decades has caused. Right. Hey, this is tangential, but let me ask you something that I've, I've long wondered about because I lack clinical experience, right, from an orthopedics perspective. So the physiologist in me, you know, I, I have all these hypotheses churning. So oftentimes you'll hear about tendon ruptures uh, in like a, a big bodybuilder or a powerlifter. They'll, they'll pop a pec or even a biceps while they're 
deadlifting, you know, that sort of thing. And obviously there's differences in blood flow with tendons versus skeletal muscle. But what's your understanding or your, your best advice for, like, for example, one school of thought is that anabolic steroids weaken tendons. Like, so there's some remodeling and the tendon itself is weaker. Another school of thought, and I have some friends who are orthopedics, uh, and they'll say, oh, well, it's really just the muscle is so strong that the muscle will change and hypertrophy and strengthen so quickly, uh, the tendon turnover is much more slow and that sort of thing. So it, the muscle just overwhelms the tendon. So because we do have very competitive people that listen to the show, and some of them, again, we don't, we, we don't, we try not to judge right about what people do. But when it comes to pop tendons and performance enhancing drugs, uh, what's your understanding about what the medications would do to the tendon itself versus just becoming so hypertrophied? that you just pull the tendon free? No, it's a great question. I, I think there probably is something to the muscles are getting stronger and that plays a part that's been sort of the argument about uh, big football players and, and higher rates of ACL tears. Their, their ACLs aren't getting bigger, but they're, they're having to stabilize the knees of much bigger, stronger guys. So oh, there may mm -hmm. be a component of that, but we know that steroids, both anabolic steroids and uh, the non uh anabolic steroids, the anti-inflammatory sure. steroids, both of those weaken tendons. Uh, there's no question about it. It does something at the cellular level, probably to the collagen. And so there isn't an increased risk of tendon rupture related to the weakening of tendons. It's why that'd be one concern with the anabolic steroids, but that's the reason we don't recommend injecting cortisone into tendons either, yes. uh, that you have a higher rate of tendon rupture. So you don't get a patella tendon uh, injected with cortisone, an Achilles tendon injected with cortisone. Even into the shoulder, there's concern if you do several cortisone shots, it could lead to higher rates of, say, rotator cuff tendon tears and things like that. So it's something with the 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 steroid, both anabolic and non-anabolic, and what it does uh, to the, the composition of the tendon. Right. Yeah, I actually remember my sister talking about that with shoulders. That was one of her, her specialties. Uh, I get the, the corticosteroid thing, right? They're catabolic by nature. They're proteolytic and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it, it does seem counterintuitive to me that an anabolic steroid would weaken a tendon, Right, because it's anabolic in nature. It should be protein synthetic in nature or somehow anti-catabolic in nature. But obviously that's tissue specific, sounds like. Yeah, I'm not a cellular biologist, so I, I'm not sure that I can tell you the cellular level changes. We just look at it as orthopedic surgeons at the data. And uh, when you compare groups of people on anabolic steroids to the people not on anabolic steroids, the tendon rupture rate goes up dramatically. And uh, um, I, again, I think it's probably more cellular changes within the tendon, uh, more than uh, strength, uh, because those tendons should be able, they should be strong enough to withstand forces, uh, even with increased uh, muscle mass. I mean, the patella tendon, the quad tendon, the Achilles tendon are very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Now, they do undergo changes over time, as you know, uh, stiffness of the tendon and, and various things like that. So it could be not just uh, cellular changes. It could be something, it may be a combination of factors, but that would be one of my concerns about anabolic steroids would be, uh, if not even just tendon rupture, you know, higher rates of the tendinosis where you get areas of degeneration within the tendon right. that cause nagging quad tendon pain, nagging Achilles tendon pain, nagging uh, patellar tendon pain. Um, we see that a lot too. No, I appreciate it. Okay, so 
uh, another question then. Um, when we talk about young athletes, we have people who listen to the show from beginner to advanced, right? So uh, we are just talking about youth and how, in a lot of ways, in exercise physiology, things are getting a little more aggressive with the exercise programming uh, for youth. Like, for example, I could tell you when I was a kid in the 70s, it, it was always the message that little kid, you know, um, let's say pre-adolescent, really shouldn't do a lot of resistance training. They could somehow damage their epiphyseal plates or whatnot and, and you know, that kind of thing. And things in general, whether it's yeah. adolescent training, even other aspects of exercise, cardiac rehab, musculoskeletal rehab, it seems more aggressive to me now. Um, but but, uh, but let me get back to my point. How can people actually um, set up programs they can uh, – improve their performance and not have to damage themselves in the process, not sacrifice career longevity. Yeah, no, I could, let me real quick address the kids thing because uh, I think that's fascinating. And I would tell you, it's not even the 1970s. I mean, even early in my training, there were a lot of people that were really worried about the risks of lifting weights for kids, but there's just not any good evidence that shows that weightlifting is harmful for kids, especially yeah. to the growth plates. I mean, yes, you want them to do it safely. You want them to have spotters and use correct technique. I'm sure all the stuff that you preach. Um, and you have to realize that kids, before they go through their growth spurt, are not getting muscle hypertrophy. They're getting stronger because of neuro uh, neuromuscular adaptation, sure. sending more nerve fibers to a particular muscle, which is going to uh, benefit them later when they do go through the growth spurt. They'll get even bigger. Uh, but I, I'm a big fan of safe weightlifting, but weightlifting for kids, I, and I'm not as, again, concerned about injuries or long-term damage. Um, the the longevity thing is, is tricky, and I don't know that there's a right answer. I mean, I, I think a little bit of it gets to kind of what you and I were talking about earlier about, you know, what's your goals down the road? You know, how hard do you push through discomfort, injury, things like that? Um, and or do you give yourself a break to get back faster? There's a lot of tricks there as far as, you know, because people want to lift weights and it's hard to modify what you do even for a short period of time. So I always kind of think through, all right, what goal am I trying to achieve both, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the road, but the next two or three months and then try to adjust, all right, I've got this pain, you know, can I do something really early, get it checked out, simple modifications so that I'm back at 100% really quickly or am I going to push through it and be at 70% for months and months? I've always been the believer that you try to get something healed really quickly, even if that means you have to modify for two or three weeks so that you're not 50 or 70% for months and months and months. So, you know, again, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think that's one of those things that it's sort of an individualized um, answer and there's no right answer for everybody, but that's how I tend to look at it. Yeah, we've had Ed Cohn on the show before. He's um, a very famous power lifter, of course. And he, one of his big philosophies is don't get hurt, right? So people would say, how how are you sort of the Michael Jordan of powerlifting? And that's what he would talk about, you know, not not getting hurt. I like what you're saying about not training, even, you know, even if it's just 15% below your ability, um, it's the flip side of what I think about in sports nutrition, right? So oftentimes we're trying to, create what my old advisor used to call a super training effect, right? So uh, like, for example, if creatine or caffeine or coffee, if they can enhance contractility, they enhance neuromuscular function, you can actually train um, in sort of this supraphysiologic state. And after six or 12 months, 
presumably you'd be more explosive, you'd have more hypertrophy, whatever it is, you know, you'd be better off, better gains. Uh, but what you're saying is sort of the flip side of that, the dark side of that coin, instead of a super training effect, it would be that injury under training effect. That if you're consistently training 15 or 30% below your ability, you're not going to have optimal muscle mass or strength or athletic performance, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really this short-term, long-term sort of balance. And and I've been a believer this, you know, whether or not it's just a nagging pain or it's a real injury, you know, something that, you know, again, maybe not, you know, or, you know like a, a pectoral tendon rupture from lifting weights, you know, that you want to get back completely healed and be at 100% rather than be at 80% or potentially hurt it worse and set yourself back further. So right. I think a lot of it's injury specific, but I, again, I'm a big, you know, try to get, if you can, you know, completely healed or completely over whatever it is uh, so that, you know, it, it, it's trick, you know, it's, it's, you know, the elbow tendonitis that do you want that to linger for six months or do you want to modify and, and take steps, you know, physical therapy and taping or whatever and be over it in two to three to four weeks and then be done with it and not have it anymore yeah, or kind of yeah. linger with it for four to six months. I mean, there's no right answer, but that's how I tend to look at it. Yeah, I, I think the ability of a lot of intermediate and experienced lifters to push through pain, it can almost be a detriment in a way, right? It can help them train yeah. intensely and reach high levels. And at the same time, yeah, they might be willing to stay in that gray area, you know, and just sort of in, endure it in a sense. Uh, let me ask yeah. you a question about prevention then. Um, let's say someone is not injured, right? They want to maximize their performance. You know, they're aggressive, they're performance oriented, uh, but also they're wise enough or smart enough to want some career longevity. Do you advocate deload phases, like a periodization kind of thing where people really back off? And if so, I mean, ideally from your perspective as a surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. How often should people do that? How much should they back off? Should they take a week or two off every now and again? Is that too much? What do you think about deloads and, and periodizing yeah. in order to extend career longevity? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know from an injury standpoint with weightlifting, it's, it's been studied that much. Generally, I think that, and this is as much me sort of following, you know, some of the experts and what they say uh, as pertains to training. But I think generally it all applies to injuries as well. You know, the week, you know, let's just say, you know, back to my 90 day training programs and I switch it up at 90 days. Usually they have about a week to 10 day period where you back off a little bit. Um, to give your body a little bit of time to recover before getting into another intense phase. You know, there's different ways to do it. There, you know, there's uh, go hard for nine months and then give your body, you know, two to three months where you don't stop working out necessarily, but you change up what you do a little bit. Mm -hmm. Or you do that, you know, you know, say again, the 90 days, you do it for two and a half of the month and then you pick up other activities for two weeks. Um, I, I'm a big fan of variety and moving stress to different parts of the body and, and changing up. I think it's good for performance, quite honestly. But I also think that limits repetitive stress uh, and continued stress to the same parts of the body over and over and over again just gives your body a little bit of time to rest. But having said that, I will tell you there's no absolute right 
answer because we just don't have data on uh, we don't have data on it at least in the injury world there may be data on the performance world but from a is that going to prevent injuries if you deload for a week versus a month or you do three months periodization and nine months you know there, there's no data to say this one's going to lead to more injuries or this one's going to lead to less injuries so that that's kind of how i approach it Okay, you know that's interesting. I and mean, yet, to, to answer that question, I mean, there there's enormous amount of literature, whether it's performance, the immune system, you know, um, endocrine stuff. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to different periodization styles and that sort of thing. But it's interesting again because I kind of look at what you do as as the bottom line. You know, as far as are yeah. the tissues healthy? Do they actually need repaired? You know things like that because a lot of strength conditioning is as much about injury prevention as it is performance enhancement and that actually surprised me when i first started you know uh chatting with strength coaches and whatnot but um, yeah no i'm curious uh, maybe offline we'll talk about periodization because I, I i'm sure you're right i'm sure there's a lot of data in a performance standpoint strength standpoint increases and all that yeah from an injury standpoint unfortunately we probably have a lot more in that sense that we need to know yeah well, well, for example, I can tell you when I tore my triceps years ago, and it was after decades of basically tendonitis that I just ignored, you know, and I would continue again with the repetitive strain and all that kind of stuff. I, I, just stupid. But um, yeah, you can look at a lot of blood markers and things that are starting to change tissue damage markers, you know, um, stress hormones rising, sex steroids going down, even glutamine concentrations changing and, and that kind of thing. And uh, but it always, again, with the bottom line is, it always was very curious to me why the tendon let go when it did. Why not a month before or a month later? Because, you know, as a scientist, I just don't want to be told it was just time. You know, just, yeah. it was just time. You don't, you don't have to know why. And I kind of want to know why, you know. Um, and I have some thoughts about that. Even, I'm even writing a, a case study on it, actually. But in any case, yeah, I, it's interesting to look at that from the injury side. Okay, now I know that you've, um, you're also an author, is that correct? Yeah, I uh, just, I'm trying to think of the date, about a month ago, uh, a little more than a month ago, published a book, uh, should be in bookstores everywhere, called That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever. Uh, it really tackles, uh, I think, 13 of some of the most famous injuries to pro and college athletes, some really famous, some that people may not even remember at all, but that had a tremendous impact on sports and rules changes and equipment, new injuries, new surgeries, and really things that uh, apply to sports at a recreational level and a youth level and to exercise that we all do as adults and gotten a lot of great feedback about it. A lot of work, but I'm really proud of it. Cool. Well, where can listeners go? Like uh, a website? Do you have a blog? Yeah, so I have a website where I write a lot about sports and exercise injuries and injury treatments and prevention. So drdavidgeier.com, uh, and Geier is G-E-I-E-R. Uh, I've got tons of stuff, podcasts, videos, uh, and written articles. And, yeah, there's links to that book, the book you can find in bookstores and online bookstores anywhere. Uh, but really, any any information that you might have about some nagging pain you have or something you're worried about with your kids, you can find it there. And if there's not an easy answer that you can find, uh, you can contact me through the website uh, or Twitter, Facebook, anywhere. I, I love social media too. I love hearing from people and kind of what they're dealing with. That's what why I, I love seeing patients in clinic and that just extends online. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I love your show. I love uh, that you're getting information out there to people that want to be active, want to get in their best shape and perform well. So it's a it's an honor uh, to be invited to, to talk to you on this show. Well, you're a busy guy, so I do appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you. Okay, everyone. Uh, until next week. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.